Brothers and sisters, we have a special guest today, uh, Dr. Graham Cole, who is, he was ordained in Australia. I said in England this morning, and I'm, I'm wrong. In fact, I've done that a couple of times with you, and you corrected me more than once, so I'm sorry. <laughs> Australia, uh, in 1976, he, he was ordained. So uh, he was ordained uh, 36, Six years ago. 36 years ago, uh, served a parish there, and then went to Chicago to teach at Trinity Evangelical Parish in Chicago, was there 10 years before um, coming to Birmingham last August, and now you hold the Anglican chair at Beeson Seminary, and you've been teaching there, and it's just great to have you, and you're going to bring us uh, a, a three-part series beginning today on the Reformation. We do have one little bump there for confirmation, so uh, is, it, is it, when is confirmation? You teach next, you teach next Sunday, too, and then, then I think confirmation and then he comes back. So during confirmation, we don't have the class because of time constraints. But anyway, it's a great pleasure to have you here. And without further ado, and your wife, Jewel, excuse me, Jewel, uh, it's so nice to have you here also. Uh, yes, indeed. So you look a little younger than his wife. <laughs> so, uh, is that okay? Oh, it is yeah. Frank. Yeah. I'll just keep my eye on you. <laughs> Uh, look, I'm delighted to be here, and I guess I should say good day, since I'm from the uh, really deep south. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our gracious God, may what I say now please you and edify your people. For Jesus' sake, Amen. I might just add a little bit more on the, the biography side of things. I served in a parish, in two parishes in Sydney, diocese, and then I taught at Moore Theological College for many years. And then I went to Ridley College down in Melbourne, diocese, as the head of that college, the principal, an Anglican training college for that diocese and for many others in Australia. And from there I came to uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago as a professor, away from administration. Ah, that was a really nice move. And then uh, wonderfully called down to Birmingham to Beeson Divinity School to be the Anglican professor there. Friends, uh, the three Sundays we have together, I want to talk about three ideas that change the world and their relevance for today. Uh, E.D. Hirsch, in a book, The New Dictionary of Cultural Literacy, what every American needs to know, and I'd add every Australian too, this, as one of the things that we need to know about to be culturally literate, is the Reformation of the 16th century. And of course, as Anglicans, so much of our history goes back to that Reformation and beyond it, of course. For after all, like Lutheranism, Anglicanism is a reformed version of Western Catholicism. And that's why in our churches we have practices like a liturgy, like a church year, a whole range of them that go back much earlier into the early church period. We greet one another with the peace at communion and so on. And over the years, uh, there have been folk who've wanted to uh, push, as it were, that Reformation legacy in a more Catholic direction and there are others who've tried to push it in a more Puritan uh, direction. And here there's a relevant distinction to the Anglican way of doing things, and that is the Anglican tradition has embraced what's called the permissive principle in that if the Bible doesn't forbid something, it may be allowed. 
And so that's why, for example, at baptism, there's the sign of the cross made. But for those uh, who are more inclined to what's called the regulative principle, their principle is if it's not in the Bible, you just don't do it. So don't kneel at communion, for example. So where do we stand, as I say? We stand in that tradition that embraces what's called that permissive principle when it comes to how we order our church life. But when it comes to what we believe, as Anglicans, we want to see what what we believe is anchored in the Scriptures, in the Word of God. And so today, we're going to look at one of the great slogans that came out of that Reformation period, the slogan, Grace Alone, Sola Gratia. Uh, Next week, we'll be looking at the Bible alone, Sola Scriptura. And then on May the 13th, Faith Alone, Sola Fide. Grace alone, I'll be talking about Martin Luther. When it comes to scripture alone, I'll be talking about Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. And when it comes to faith alone, William Tyndale, the great Bible translator. But above all, I'll be anchoring what I say in the scriptures, in the word of God. So friends, let's start with uh, grace alone. And by the way, my talk will be powerless and pointless. It'll be (laughs) just the living voice, as uh, Bishop Papias would have preferred. Uh, Firstly, A, some history. Uh, The Martin Luther story. Of course, it's impossible to talk about the Reformation without talking about that professor of Scripture who taught at Wittenberg. Uh, He died in 1546, but famously leading up to the very famous event of uh, nailing 95 theses of protest against the church door at Wittenberg, leading up to that as a professor of scripture and lecturing on the Bible, on the Old Testament and the New Testament, he gradually realised that the gospel was not what he had thought it was. He thought that life was about trying to find a gracious God who would accept him. But what he found as he was taught by the scriptures that he himself was teaching was that there was a gracious God in search of Martin Luther. And it was this gracious God who met him through the gospel he read in the Bible, the gospel of what Jesus has done for us and who he is that changed his life and began that reformation. Uh, The catalytic event was uh, there was someone who was a kind of Vatican salesman around, you know, Wittenberg back in the early part of the 16th century by the name of uh, Tetzel. And Tetzel, this uh, particular priest, had the job of raising revenues for Rome so that St. Peter's Basilica could indeed be built and finished. And uh, there's a famous ditty that was associated with this Tetzel who was selling what was called indulgences around the place at the time. And that is, if you paid some money, you could get some relief, uh, time out from purgatory. Or maybe one of your relatives, likewise. You could buy an indulgence and time out for them from purgatory. Lessen the time there. And the ditty was, every time a coin in the copper rings a soul from purgatory springs. So, whether he really said that or not, it's attributed to him, but that's the kind of thinking that he protested against because what he found was a God of grace 
not a God looking for merit in us. You see, grace is the favour, the unmerited favour, the undeserved favour that a superior shows to an inferior. Grace is the great rediscovery that the, New Te- that the Old Testament and New Testament teaches and that the Reformers retrieved from the scriptural testimony, Old Testament and New Testament, and none more so than Luther himself. And that grace stood in contrast to merit. Merit is that quality in an action that deserves a reward. Now, I have no idea what I'm about to say next as to what it actually refers to, but someone tells me there's an Old Smith Barney commercial, so someone will have to tell me who Old Smith Barney was, <laughs> that runs like this, we get to heaven the old-fashioned way, we earn it. Well, that's the very reverse of the gospel that Martin Luther found in the scriptures because it's not what we have done, it's what God has done in Jesus Christ on our behalf. That is the key, grace and not merit. But let me ask, reformers like Martin Luther, were they on good biblical grounding for saying that? So, A, if you're taking notes, we looked at Martin Luther briefly, the history, some of the history, and now, B, we're turning to the biblical grounding. Now, I'm talking quickly because I'm excited about what I'm talking about. But if at any time I talk too quickly, just take me aside after this is over and I'll slow down for next time. Well, as I say, I think these reformers were on great and solid Bible ground for saying that the key is grace. If you have your Bible there, you might like to turn to John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, part of the so-called prologue of John, introducing the great themes of this fourth gospel. This is what we read there, starting in verse uh, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, the great words of the covenant. John bore witness, that's John the Baptist bore witness about him, and, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, here's the contrastive statement, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now this word that was with God, is God, became flesh, now has a human name. This son is none other than Jesus Christ who walked on the stage of history. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Grace upon grace comes through Jesus Christ. That's something that Luther discovered from the scriptures. But what does that grace concretely look like? Well, now we turn to one of Paul's letters, if you're following it in the Scriptures, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. One of my favourite Bible verses, I must say. Now, there are many ways to define a word. Uh, One way is to get equivalent words. So, what does brother mean? 
Well, we go to the dictionary, you find a brother is a male sibling. But philosophers will tell you there are over 20 different ways you can actually define a word. And another way you define a word is narratively. That is, you tell a story in which the word is used and the story tells you what the meaning of the word is. And here, in this wonderful verse, we have what grace is all about. For Paul writes to these Corinthians to try and motivate them to be generous, to do something that they don't have to do, but he hopes will be motivated to do. And that is to give money to a collection he's getting to go to Jerusalem to help the poor Christian Jews there in Jerusalem. And to do so, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. That through his poverty, we might become rich. This is what grace looks like. We know what grace is because we think of the coming of Jesus Christ, his incarnation. We know what grace is because we think of his cross, that Good Friday cross, when he bore the sins of the world, yours and mine. We know what grace is because the story of Jesus tells us what grace looks like, what divine grace looks like. It's not what we have done, it's what God has done for us through his Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul knows how to apply that. So if you turn next to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, we see what this looks like. If you're one of God's people, how does it apply to you and me? Well, this is what Paul famously wrote. For by grace, there's that word again, by God's undeserved favour, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what grace is about. Grace, that undeserved favour from God, eliminates any grounds we have for boasting. That was Paul's concern. That's where that old Barney Smith commercial has got it so wrong. Uh, we can't boast that we've earned our way to heaven in the light of Jesus Christ, in the light of Good Friday, in the light of Easter Sunday, in the light of a great text like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Not of our works, lest any of us should boast. Now, to really appreciate what Paul is saying here requires a real moral self-awareness on our part. Because unless we become aware of our need for divine grace, for God's undeserved favour extended to us in Jesus Christ, we will wonder what the point is. And that self-awareness will only come if we really take into account who our God is, as a God who is love indeed, but a God who is light, in whom there is no darkness at all. Uh, I remember 
uh, talking about these things at our national capital in Canberra. And a young woman came up to me after the service and she thought I'd done a good job. That's always encouraging. Uh, But she didn't need any of this um, grace business for her. So I, I said to her, well, do you know what the greatest commandments are according to Jesus? And she said she didn't. I said, well, it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And there's a second one, to love your neighbour as yourself. And I said, now, Jenny, have you done that all your life? You've loved God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and you've loved your neighbour as yourself? Well, there was silence and then she said, well, actually, no. (laughs) Well, I said, they're the two biggies and you've broken both of them. (laughs) And I'm glad to say that she found grace that night. Because all of a sudden it was like a mirror was held up to her and she saw that there was moral dirt on her face as it were. Until, friends, we come to that moral self-awareness and the Anglican liturgy should remind us every time we, we go to a service the need to confess our sins. This grace business will just seem an empty concept. But like Luther looking for a gracious God, if we come to that point of self-realisation, this is good news indeed. Life-transforming news. Grace, not merit. Good works, yes, are something that are, are expressive of the Christian life, but look at the order. By grace you're saved through faith, not of works as we should boast. But remember, we are in Christ as God's people, now that we are rightly related to God by God's grace, we are his workmanship created for good works. As John Calvin said, another 16th century, a great reforming figure, the faith that saves is alone, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It will show itself in that life of gratitude. But more about that in a moment. One last text, this time one of the words from the cross, John 19.30. John 19.30. Let me take up the story in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished and to fulfil the scripture, I thirst, he said. And a jar full of sour wine uh, that stood there was brought to him and a sponge, his branch held it to his mouth. And then in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Tetelestai is the, the language. It means it's done, it stands done, its implications continue. In other words, Christ had accomplished the work that the Father gave him to provide all that was necessary for us to come back rightly related to God, not through our own efforts, but through God's grace, as I keep saying. Notice he didn't say, it is to be continued by you. And yet that old Barney Smith commercial seems to be saying just that. But that's not the biblical testimony at this point. Our reformers, whether it's Martin Luther or John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, they knew they had good biblical grounding. 
for grace alone, not merit. So C then, moving to point C, the relevance for us uh, today. I think that our study raises some significant questions. What about finding a gracious God today? Uh, Where do we take our guilt? And where do we take our shame? In the light of the biblical testimony, we take them to the cross of Christ. That's where we take them. It has been dealt with there. And as we shall see when we look at faith alone, it will be faith, the empty hands of faith that grasp what is so promised to us in what Christ has achieved. But more about that on another day. But friends, let me just say to you, if you are carrying a great burden of guilt because there is really, there are events in your life that have created genuine moral guilt, not simply psychological vague guilt, but you know, there are things there that uh, you really do need forgiveness for. And there are things that uh, we have done in our lives that if the rest of the world knew we'd be red-faced, we'd be ashamed. Well, the wonderful news of the Gospel is that what God has done in Christ addresses both our the guilt of our conscience and the shame in our hearts. Forgiven and cleansed. That is the promise. A fresh start, as an evangelist friend of mine, John Chapman, puts it. Because of grace. The next thing I'd like to say of relevance today is first things first. It's It's sad that uh, many people in churches and beyond churches think that when it comes to God, it's a kind of ladder morality where each step of being moral is a step higher towards heaven. In fact, I can think of the title of a book called Seven Steps to Heaven, which seems to reinforce that particular picture. But I want to say to you that the genius of this good news that we find in our Bibles is that our moral life created in Christ Jesus for good works is what we read in Ephesians 2. This moral life is a response morality. Not a ladder morality, but a response morality. That's true of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. How did the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20 start? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the house of Egypt. Therefore, God's grace in rescuing his people becomes the basis for the life lived in response to that. It's not the other way around. And that is the same structure we find in our New Testament. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he sets out the gospel in great detail and length in Romans chapters 1 through to 11 about Christ's death, about what he's achieved, about the giving of the Spirit. And then in chapter 12 and verse 1 he says, Therefore, by the mercies of God I beseech you, present your bodies as living sacrifice. That is the appropriate response. A response morality, not a ladder morality. A response morality understands grace. A ladder morality is working on the notion of merit. And then the last thing I'd like to say at this point and develop is 
If what I'm saying about grace is right and indeed grounded in the Bible, as I believe it is, then the Christian life is a gratitude-fueled life, not a duty-driven life. Certainly we have duties and obligations. I'm not denying that. But what is, as it were, informing us, shaping us, leading us, is it that thankfulness that truly appreciates what grace has given or is it the burden of what I simply have to do? A life lived out of thankfulness as opposed to a life lived out of a sense of obligation only. How unattractive the latter is. How attractive the former is. John Wesley, I think, understood something about this back in the 18th century. I'm very big on when people die. He died in 1791. And one reason is if you teach theology, teach philosophy as I've done, it's easier to remember when someone's you know, passed away because if they're born in one century like Martin Luther and dies in another, it just gets complicated. You know, that 15th, 16th century figure, Martin Luther... It's much easier to say he died in 1546. Well, Wesley passed away towards the end of the 18th century. And he looked at some of the people who'd become Christians in his orbit and many of them were such grim characters. He thought, did they really understand grace or not? And so he reworked the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15 to make his point. And I'm going to do it my own sort of Aussie way. But he said, it's as though that son in that story, Luke 15, uh, who said, look, in that pigsty, I'm going to go back home and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven, that is against God, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he, he does that. And Leslie says, it's like, he then goes back home And he knocks on the door and he keeps knocking and eventually the door opens and there's the father standing there. And so the son then gives his speech. Father, I've sinned against you and I'm not uh, not worthy to be called your son. And the father just uh, looks at him for a while and says, too right, you cur. I'll get you into the kitchen and I'll see how you go and then we can have another talk after a while. And uh, Wesley made the point, that seems to be how many of the people that had come into his orbit, you know, had embraced the gospel he preached, seemed to understand how it worked out. And I think our churches are filled with people like that. Filled with people like that. But the story is so different, as Wesley pointed out. The father is waiting. The father is looking. The son comes with his speech and the father runs to greet him. And the father says, kill the fatted calf, get the ring, put a robe on him. My son who is dead is alive again. That's what grace is like. There is a waiting father. There are lights on in the father's house. And friends, if we really have embraced that, then the life we lived in response to this gospel is a life of gratitude and thankfulness driven by that deep sense 
that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, forgiven us and made us clean because of Jesus Christ. Well, friends, uh, there's plenty of time for questions this morning. So, I wonder if there is a question or two coming from you. I have just one for you. I hope it's not too technical, but I was pleased to hear about Wesley's interpretation of that story because as an Arminian, as one who at least didn't grasp the doctrine of election as Anglicans do according to the 39 articles, could he as an Arminian then really fully grasp the profundity of grace that that perhaps I sound sounds almost self-righteous and I apologize for it, <laughs> as perhaps there are, are Anglicans. Is that a fair question? Well, let me respond to it uh, this way about John Wesley. John Wesley was not on the Calvinist or Reform side of things, but on the Arminian side of things. It's a pretty technical uh, distinction. So, did he have an appreciation of grace as a result of his theology as deep as he might have if he had really understood his own 39 articles <laughs> of the Church of England. And it must be remembered that uh, Wesley was uh, an Anglican to the day he died and uh, Wesley said he tried to come within a hair's breadth of uh, Calvinism. So, he tried to get as close as he could. Firstly, I think that someone's espoused theology may not be as good as their operational theology. That is, he espoused uh, a notion of free will that I don't think our articles support, but I think he actually lived as though God was sovereign. So, sometimes our espoused theology, what we say and how we live, can be different, our operational theology. Uh, But I would say that if you understand uh, what the human predicament is, how far from God we are, even if we sit in church at times, then you have no um, compunction in ascribing one's salvation, one's rescue entirely to a sovereign act of God. And that's where our our 39 articles stand on that issue. So, I think his operational theology was better than his espoused theology at that point. Is that addressing your question? Yes, I just heard, you know, an Arminian can give 95% of the glory to God, 99% of the glory of God, but they hold that that one little percent because I made this decision for Christ, you know, so I get a little bit of credit there, don't I? I think that's, see, put it in Paul's language, that leaves just a little bit for boasting. And that's the very thing he wanted to eliminate in Ephesians chapter 2. My old theological teacher, Broughton Knox, said the difference between a Calvinist and an Arminian has to do with just as I am without one plea. You know that hymn that was often sung at Billy Graham Crusades? The Calvinist only sings the regulation number of uh, stanzas. The Arminian keeps the last one going over and over and over and over again. (laughs) I wonder if there's another question. Way over there.
Yes, I would. Um, someone was saying that, I understand that the theologian is uh, really the person who is really reflecting on the outworking of the gospel, whereas understanding and responding to the gospel may not take the level of knowledge that, say, a theologian would be on about. Would that be fair to your question? I think that's a very good point. And I think it can be illustrated by that wonderful story in Mark's Gospel about the woman who had the hemorrhage. Remember that story? Uh, she said in Mark chapter 5, if I, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. Now, technically, she seemed to have what's called a thaumaturgical Christology. And that's a good term to use at your next dinner party. <laughs> But as a theologian, I'm paid to use big words. It makes me sound clever. But a thaumaturge in the ancient world was a wonder worker. Christology is our doctrine of Christ. And it seems that she had an understanding of him as though he was just a wonder worker. So if she could get somehow in touch with him physically by touching the hem of his garment, then she would be healed. In other words, her Christology was deficient. What did Jesus say to her? He said to her, you should read my next book on who I am. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> he said, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. I think that illustrates the point. With little faith, we can, as it were, connect with the great Christ. And it will take time for our understanding to catch up. But the great uh, desire, apostolic desire, as we find in Colossians 1, is not to teach people the minimum, but to present every person mature in Christ. So it's, it's on to maturity. And that's where the theologian hopefully can make a valuable contribution. Is that addressing your question? Thank you. There's another one up there. I feel like an evangelist. Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you. <laughs> A thaumaturgical Christology. Yes, T H A U M U R G A T I C A L. Sorry. <laughs> Is there another question there? Well, it's just wonderful to have you here, and I can't wait for. And we have solo scriptura coming up. And uh, Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer is. Uh, our patron, patron saint, uh, author of our, our prayer book, and we look forward to that next Sunday. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Thanks Thank be to you, God. God.